Turn, if you would, to the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 3, page 203 in the Forms and Prayers book, and 873 in the Trinity Psalter Hymnal. This evening we're going to be looking at the Holy Spirit as the one who regenerates, who gives new life, new birth to those whom the Father has given to the Son and to those for whom the Son has given his life. And so I want to read Lord's Day 3, which sets us up for that teaching. Question 6. Did God create man so wicked and perverse? No. God created man good and in his own image, that is, in true righteousness and holiness, so that he might truly know God his Creator love him with all his heart, and live with God in eternal happiness for his praise and glory. Then where does man's corrupt nature come from? From the fall and disobedience of our first parents, Adam and Eve, in paradise, this fall has so poisoned our nature that we are all conceived and born in sin. But are we so corrupt that we are totally unable to do any good and inclined toward all evil? Yes, unless we are born again by the Spirit of God. And then if you'll turn to the Holy Word of God, to Ezekiel 36, you'll find that on page 918 in the Pew Bible, Ezekiel 36. I want to begin reading at verse 22 and read to the end of the chapter. Ezekiel 36, verse 22, Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations." And gather you from all the countries, and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. And I will deliver you from all your uncleannesses and I will summon the grain and make it abundant and lay no famine upon you. I will make the fruit of the tree and the increase of the field abundant, that you may never again suffer the disgrace of famine among the nations. Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good, 
And you will loathe yourselves for your iniquities and your abominations. It is not for your sake that I will act, declares the Lord God. Let that be known to you. Be ashamed and confounded for your ways, O house of Israel. Thus says the Lord God, On the day that I cleanse you from all your iniquities, I will cause the cities to be inhabited, and the waste places shall be rebuilt And the land that was desolate shall be tilled, instead of being the desolation that it was in the sight of all who passed by. And they will say, this land that was desolate has become like the Garden of Eden. And the waste and desolate and ruined cities are now fortified and inhabited. Then the nations that are left all around you shall know that I am the Lord. I have rebuilt the ruined places and replanted that which was desolate. I am the Lord, I have spoken, and I will do it. Thus says the Lord God, this also I will let the house of Israel ask me to do for them, to increase their people like a flock, like the flock for sacrifices, like the flock at Jerusalem during her appointed feasts, so shall the waste cities be filled with flocks of people. Then they will know that I am am the Lord. Thus far the reading of God's word, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Israel is in a mess. They had lived under the blessing of God in the land of promise. The Lord had delivered them from the tyranny of Egypt and had led them through the wilderness and had planted them in the promised land. And They had known favor from God there, but they were there no longer. They were now in exile. They were in exile because they had disobeyed the two great commandments of God. As the Lord says in verse 17, the house of Israel has defiled it by their ways, and the Lord poured out his wrath on them because... They broke the second great commandment by shedding blood unrighteously within the land, and they broke the first great commandment by worshiping idols instead of giving themselves wholly to the Lord their God. And so it's no wonder that the righteous God, who has a concern for his holy name, should pour out his judgment upon his people. But if we're going to understand what God is teaching us this evening from this prophecy, we need to understand that Israel is a microcosm, that what God is saying he will do here is what God does for all his people, both Jew and Gentile, not only in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament as well. Israel is a microcosm of all humanity. Now, some of you children might think that microcosm is quite a large word. It's, it is not a familiar word, but perhaps I can illustrate it to you. Some of you children, I'm sure, have miniature tractors in your home. In fact, some of you older people have miniature tractors in your home. I was in a home this past week and spied some on a shelf on the wall. Well, those little tractors are not the real thing. They look like the real thing, but they're not the real thing. Their PTO shafts don't spin. Their wheels don't always steer. And 
You, there's no way that you can start them up and use them to pull any small wagons. They're, they're much like the big tractors, but they're not. Now, if your little toy tractor could do everything that the big tractor could do, but just on a smaller scale, then your little tractor would be a microcosm of the big tractor. It's the big tractor shrunk down in size. And that's the way you're to understand what God is doing here with the nation of Israel. He is showing on a small scale what he sovereignly does in the lives of his people throughout the whole world, throughout all ages of humanity's existence. Israel is a microcosm of all humanity. So what is God, the great God, going to do to these people? Well, the first thing you need to notice is that he says he's going to restore them to the land of promise. You can see this in verse 24. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. Remember, Israel, because of their disobedience, had been exiled from the presence of God, and they had been taken up residence in Assyria and in Babylonia. And God says now he's going to take them from those nations and bring them back to the land. And, and when they're back in the land, they will live in prosperity and will know the blessing of God. Verse 28, you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and you shall be my God, and I will be your people. And it would be a time of rich prosperity. God will summon the grain, he says in verse 29, and make it abundant. There'll never know famine anymore. The fruit of the tree and the increase of the fields will be abundant so that they will never again suffer the disgrace of the nations. It's going to be not only back in the land, but in the land with prosperity. In fact, what is happening here can be summarized by those immortal words that we see in verse 28. And you shall be my people, and I will be your God. And so they would know fellowship with God. They would know the blessing of God. And the blessing and favor of God would be evidenced by material prosperity in the land. And that promise, I will be your God and you will be my people, is, is like the refrain of a familiar hymn throughout Scripture. We first come across it in Genesis 17 when God establishes the covenant with Abram and says to Abram, I will be your God and the God of your offspring after you. And then you see that repeated again and again throughout the first five books of the Bible. You see it throughout the prophets and then you see it again in the, Old, in the New Testament, in the book of Revelation, because there it reaches its climax, its culmination. Listen to what the prophet John saw. He said he saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband, and he heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. So that's the great promise that Ezekiel conveys to God's people who are in a mess, who are exiled, disfellowship from him. 
God will one day do a great work and restore his people, not just to the land, that's just a picture of the blessings of God, but will restore his people to himself that they might enjoy his smile, know his favor, live in fellowship and community with him forever. That's the great promise that God's people in Ezekiel 36 here. But there's a problem. There's a problem because Israel is disfellowshipped from God. They're in exile. And there's a reason why they were disfellowshipped from God. It wasn't just willy-nilly or arbitrary that God just woke up one morning, had a bad day, and said, I hate these people, don't want to be with them anymore. No, no, there was a problem with Israel, a real deep problem. And you say, well, I know what that problem is. They had disobeyed God. They had worshipped foreign idols, and they had shed the blood of their fellow man unrighteously. Well, that is a problem, and for that, God should be distressed and displeased with his people, but, but the problem goes even deeper than that. Because the heart of the problem in Israel, the reason they did what they did was because of the problem of their heart. So that their disobedience was just a symptom of where their heart was. Remember, Our Lord Jesus in Mark 7 says that what comes out of a person is what defiles them because what comes out gives evidence to what's within. And so the reason they worshipped other gods is because their hearts were bad. The reason they killed one another unrighteously is because their hearts were bad. And so the problem with Israel was not just what they did. The problem with Israel was who they were. And God here promises not only to restore them to fellowship with himself, but to remove every impediment to the restoration of fellowship. That whatever caused him to disfellowship them, to cast them into exile, he was going to deal with so that he could welcome them back and so that they could enjoy fellowship with him and he could enjoy fellowship with them once more. God is going to do something, and he's going to do it sovereignly. You see, the problem with a bad heart is that you cannot change it yourself. Someone else has to do it. The problem with being a sinner and dead in your trespasses and sins, as Paul reminds the Ephesians that they were prior to their conversion, is that dead people cannot affect any change in themselves. The prophet Jeremiah poses this question, can an Ethiopian change his skin or a leopard his spots? He says, well, no, of course not. That's their color, indelibly. A leopard has spots, cannot be removed. Well, then he goes on to say, neither can my people do good who are accustomed to doing evil. That's the problem with humanity. It's It's not just that we don't want to change, but even if we wanted to change, we couldn't change ourselves. And so the beauty of God's promise is that He will do it. Just look at uh, the passage beginning in verse 24. God says, I will take 
you from the nations. Verse 25, I will sprinkle clean water. Verse 25 at the end, and from all your idols, I will cleanse you. Verse 26, I will give you a new heart. I will put a new spirit within you. I will remove the heart of of stone. I will put my spirit within you. I will deliver you from all your uncleanness. I will summon the grain. I will make the fruit of the tree and increase of the field abundant. God doesn't just promise things, but he promises that he will do them. I think that's such a wonderfully encouraging truth, that God promises to do in us what we cannot do for ourselves. I'm sure you've been in a situation where where you know you ought to change, that what you're doing is displeasing to God, and it fills you with grief and angst, but you feel so profoundly helpless. You sometimes don't even know how to change. And when you want to change, you feel like you can't change. And it seems so hopeless. And then what you need to hear is what God promises to do. I will do it. That's how he ends the section. I am the Lord. I have spoken. And I will do it. You know, there are some Christians, I, I I can't think that they really mean this truly, but there are some Christians who, who bristle at the sovereignty of God, who don't want God interfering in people's lives, who want salvation to be of their free will, of their own choice. But I love the sovereignty of God. I adore it. I worship God for His sovereignty because I know that if God did not do it, it would go undone. And if it would go undone, I would be undone. Worship God for His sovereign intervention in your life, for His profound and unstoppable, I will do it. So whatever he's going to do, he's going to do sovereignly. He's not asking for Israel's cooperation. He's not asking for their permission. He's going to do it. I will do it. Well, what's he going to do? Well, he's going to cleanse their souls. That's what he says in verse 25. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be cleansed from all your uncleanness and from all your idols. You see, the problem of Israel, the reason that they were exiled from the presence of God was because of their uncleanness. God had said repeatedly that He was holy, and for people to live with Him, they needed to be holy as well, and anything that defiled them would cause them to be removed from His presence. With, With God, the wicked cannot dwell. And God says, that impediment, I'll take care of that. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols. If you know the Old Testament sacrificial system at all, you'll know that sprinkling was a common thing. It signified cleansing. It didn't actually cleanse. When, when Israel was sprinkled with the blood from the altar, it, you could argue that it didn't make them cleaner. It actually made them dirtier because they had the the blood splattered on them, but, but it was a ritual cleansing. It was symbolic cleansing. It was uh, 
a demonstration that just as water cleanses us from dirt, so God will cleanse us by His grace and Spirit. That's incidentally why we, when we baptize infants at Trinity, it's not because we're afraid to immerse children. After all, we know the Old Testament that God circumcised young boys at eight days. Getting dunked would be no problem at all. So we we sprinkle, not because uh, we're afraid to immerse them and think perhaps they're going to drown or it'll be uncomfortable for them. No, we sprinkle them because sprinkling captures the promise of baptism, that just as water cleanses the body from dirt, so God, through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, cleanses our hearts from sin. The cleansing in the Old Testament wasn't, wasn't a, a deep cleansing that, that actually did remove all filth from their body. It was symbolic, just like baptism is. And so here the, the Lord is saying that He is going to cleanse His people from all their uncleanness and from all their idolatry. And I think He's referring here to the ritual in Numbers 19. If you were in Israel's day, living in Israel's day, and you came in contact with a dead person, their body, that would render you unclean. Symbolically, of course. And you would have to be cleansed from your uncleanness. You would be told to wash yourself, and if you, didn't be, if you weren't cleansed, then, then you would be cut off from the people of God. You couldn't have fellowship because you were defiled. And so the way that you would be cleansed so that fellowship could continue was that someone would have to throw water on you. Someone would have to sprinkle you. And if they sprinkled you, you would be cleansed from your ritual defilement. Now, I think this is what God is saying. Israel is spiritually dead because of their sin, their rebellion against the Lord. They must wash themselves, but they cannot wash themselves because of their own spiritual death. And so God says, I will sprinkle the water on you. I will cleanse you from all of your defilement. I will make you clean. So that's the first thing that God promises, that He will cleanse their souls. And then He promises that He is going to change their heart by His Spirit. You see, the heart is bad. When the Bible speaks about heart, they are talking about the whole inner rational being of humans. So, the Bible, when it speaks about heart, it refers to the mind, how you think, your desires, how you feel, and your actions, what you will to do. Interestingly, in the Old Testament, most often when the heart is referred to, it refers to your mind, what you think. And so the human heart is bad. It doesn't think good thoughts of God. It doesn't desire to serve Him. And it doesn't actually obey Him in life. Our hearts, our, our minds, our desires, our wills are all distorted and ruined. 
And then he also talks not only about a bad heart that needs to be replaced, but also about our spirit. And, and that, again, has to do not so much with our mind as our feelings, our, our disposition, our inclination. And uh, God is saying that we need a new heart and a new spirit because our heart and our spirit are bad by nature. It's always inclined to do what is evil, as our catechism says, that, that our hearts by nature hate God and hate our neighbor, break the first great commandment and break the second great commandment. And that's true across the board. That's what we are by nature. God-haters and fellow human haters. We're always bent towards evil. Our inclination is always to do what is wrong. We're always leaning towards idolatry and bloodshed. That's the problem. The problem with humanity is the problem of the heart. As the Apostle Paul says in Romans 8, it is those who are led by the flesh They're hostile to God. They cannot submit to God's law. They do not submit to God's law. Indeed, they cannot. Those who are in the flesh, that is, those who are untouched in any way by the grace of God but ruined by sin, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. That's the human dilemma. And God is saying to His people, listen, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to do a work of transformation. I will do a heart transplant. Verse 26, I will give you a new heart. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Heart of stone is a reference to the coldness of the human heart towards God. The hardness, the obstinacy, the deadness. It's inability to receive impressions or to give expression to anything. That's, that's the picture of the human heart. It's like stone, cold, dead. God says, I'll do a heart transplant. Take out that heart of stone and I'll give you a heart of flesh. Heart of flesh is soft and malleable and impressionable. It's, uh, it's warm. It's able to to relate, to have relations and communion and fellowship with God. That's what God's going to do. He's going to give a heart transplant. Take out the heart of stone, give them a heart of flesh. And then the human spirit, remember, is always inclined to do what is wrong. It's always bent on doing evil. God says, I will give you, in place of your spirit, I will give you my spirit. Verse 27. And I will put my spirit within you. And the Spirit of God will overcome and eradicate and replace the human inclination to evil. That's what God is promising. This great transformation, a transformation that is accomplished by the Spirit of the living God. You'll you'll remember, of course, that in Genesis 1, when God was creating the world. He made all things. And it says the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters of the deep. And it was the Spirit who brought things into life in in the creation. And it's the same Spirit of God who brings to life in the human heart, uh, takes away death, rebellion, 
and replaces that with life and vitality and fruitfulness for the glory of God. So that bad heart will be transformed, and that changed heart will lead to changed lives. Notice what he says. I will put my spirit within you and cause you, this is verse 27, and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. See, there's a profound transformation. They're now going to run in the way of God's commandments. They hated the law of God. They're going to love it now because God has done this work of regeneration in their life. And and then notice their attitudinal change in verse 31. Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good, and you will loathe yourselves for your iniquities and your abominations. Israel says, yes, we're disobeying God, but what's the big deal? Who cares? Who's God that we should obey him? And God says, well, when the Spirit comes and transforms you, when you have a new heart and a new spirit, I'll tell you, you're going to think differently about your sin. You're not going to brush it off as mere peccadilloes, as insignificant, minor infelicities. No, you will recognize that your deeds were not good and you will hate yourself because of it. Because of your iniquities and your abominations, you will feel the weight of your sin against God because the Spirit of the sovereign God has changed you. So that's what God promises to Israel. But remember, children, Israel is a, what was that word again? a microcosm of all humanity. And humanity is the one that has the problem, not just Israel. What The problem with Israel is a problem of all humanity. Our sinful hearts have alienated us from God. Just as Adam and Eve were driven from the Garden of Eden, just as Israel was driven from the land of promise, so are we driven from the presence of God. We cannot have fellowship with God in our sin, unchanged, according to nature. We hate God, and we hate our neighbor. We're God's enemies, and he is ours as well. And so in order for fellowship, and there needs to be cleansing and a transformation, in order for there to be life and liberty in the presence of God, delighting in his presence, rejoicing in his grace, living life underneath his smile with his favor upon us, in order for that to happen, there must be cleansing and there must be a changed heart. And God says that's what he does. And he does that by the Spirit of God. That's what our catechism said. Lord, say three. Are we so wicked and perverse? Yes. Unless we are born again by the Spirit of God. Listen to our form of baptism. What does baptism teach us in the first place? That, our, that we and our children are conceived and born in sin. This means that we are by nature children of wrath. And for that reason, cannot be members of Christ's kingdom unless we are born again. We cannot go into the world to come the way sin has brought us into this world. And what the catechism is saying and what our form for baptism is saying is the same thing that our Lord Jesus Christ said in John's gospel when he spoke to that teacher 
in Israel. Remember, Nicodemus' children came to Jesus by night. And Jesus said to Nicodemus, Listen, truly, truly, I say unto you, I need you to understand this, Nicodemus. No one can, end, can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. There's no fellowship with God unless we are born again. It's not just the renovation of our lives. It's not just that we need to do better. It's that our hearts need to be taken from us and replaced with hearts of flesh. It's our stubborn, obstinate spirits need to be removed, and God must place His Holy Spirit within us and change us and regenerate us, make us born once more, born again, born from above. Unless that happens, we cannot see the kingdom of God. We cannot enter the kingdom We cannot have fellowship with the holy God. Instead, we will be forever in the kingdom of darkness under the wrath and curse of God forever. But when God, by His Spirit, does His I will in your life, well, then everything changes. Everything changes. And particularly, your change will be with regard to the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, we spoke, was it last Lord's Day? Maybe. Where the great work of the Holy Spirit of God is to bring us to Christ. He's the divine matchmaker. He's the celestial marriage broker. He takes a sinner, takes a Savior, and brings them together in mutual love and devotion. Well, when the Spirit of God works in the human heart, then they are led to Christ. I find it very interesting that Jesus in John 3 says that we must be born again by the Spirit of the living God. But he ends that section by speaking about how Moses was lifted, or Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So that being born again leads you inexorably. It leads you without any doubt at all to believing in Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, whom God has given for the salvation of sinners. And what the Spirit does in our lives is is that He gives us a new view of God. We recognize His holiness and majesty, and we tremble before Him. And we're astonished that we have taken Him so lightly and treated Him as if He weighed nothing when He's really glorious and holy and perfect, and we thought that He would or should have no problem with us. We're changed. The Spirit of God enlightens our minds and the knowledge of God. And the Spirit makes us feel the, the weight of our sin. Remember what, uh, what uh, Ezekiel said, uh, that you will then remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good, and you will loathe yourselves for your iniquities and your abominations. So that's what the Spirit does in us. He, he gives us this holy fear, this astonishment, 
about our sins, that we've played lightly with them, we've thought of them casually, we didn't think they were significant. But when the Spirit of God transforms you, you are astonished at how serious sin really is. So you have a new view of God, you have a new view of sin, you have a new view of yourself, and you have a new view of Jesus Christ. You thought He was just a teacher or a good example. Or maybe you didn't even think that highly of Him. Maybe you hated Him like so many did when He walked the earth as they called out for His crucifixion and refused to submit to His authority. But when the Spirit of God works in your heart and transforms you, when you are born again, you see the Lord Jesus Christ and you think Him the most brilliant, most glorious, most beautiful person you've ever met. And you see Him as the Savior who's absolutely suited for your needs. And you see Him as a Lord under whom you bow sovereignly and you bow gladly because you're so entranced with His glory. You're so astonished at His wonder, at His willingness to save, at His ability to save, at His tender heart, His kind compassion. When the Spirit of God works in you, well then, you love the Lord Jesus Christ. And you gladly say, Jesus is Lord. And you can only say, Jesus is Lord. Paul says, except, or you can only say, Jesus is Lord, by the Holy Spirit. So that's one of the first signs that you're born again. You have a new appreciation, completely new, a different appreciation for the Lord Jesus Christ. And then secondly, very briefly, your life will be transformed. You'll walk in obedience. You'll do good works. Why? Because you're led by the Spirit of God. The fruit of the Spirit will abound in your life. You'll be transformed from one degree of glory to another as the Spirit takes you and conforms you more and more to the image of Jesus Christ. It's, it's not immediate. Your coming to Christ is immediate when the Spirit of God works in you, but the transformation of your life, well, that takes the rest of your life until you see the Lord Jesus Christ, and then instantaneously all sin is removed and you're completely conformed, thoroughly transformed. No residue of sin is left. No disobedience, no smidgen of disobedience can be found. But that's what happens when the Spirit of God regenerates a sinner, changes them, transforms them, gives them new birth and new life. So here's a question for you in closing. Are you born again? Now, that's not a very common question in our circles. That's what evangelicals… Remember, uh, I think it was probably the 70s, the 80s. That was the great buzzword. Remember Chuck Colson, the hatchet man of President Nixon? He was transformed, and he wrote a book entitled Born Again. That used to be the question that was on everyone's lips. Are you born again? And we, uh, we shy away from that question. But it is a good question. It is good to, to look at your own heart and own life. I mean, you can't really tell when regeneration takes place because, as the Lord Jesus said, the wind blows where it will, and you hear the sound, but... Uh, 
You don't know from where it's coming but where it's, or where it's going, but, but you do know the effects of the wind. And similarly, you do know the effects of the Spirit. So are you born again? Has the Spirit of God transformed you, given you a new heart, so that you have put your full confidence in the Lord Jesus Christ and trusted in Him? Yeah. Loathe yourself because of your sin, but you'll love Him because He's the sin-bearer. And are you living your life devoted to his glory, pursuing obedience out of gratitude for the greatness of his grace? How much we owe to our triune God. Do you ever think of where you would be if he wasn't merciful to you? If the Father hadn't chosen you from before the foundation of the world, if the Son hadn't been given, and if He hadn't given Himself. And imagine if the Holy Spirit weren't given to you, and you entered this world with a proud, rebellious heart, and you left it the same way. You shudder to think of what that would be like. And so we praise God, we bow before Him in worship, and we thank Him for His triune grace, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and we give him the worship and the praise. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord, our God, how much we owe to you sovereign grace. We love it, and we love it because you've made us new creations in Christ Jesus, and we worship you for that. We pray, our God, that you would bless your word to our hearts, help us to examine ourselves so that we might be confident that our trust is not in uh, the foundation of our own building, that we would not be self-reliant, but that our foundation would be in Jesus Christ alone. We pray for those who are not born again and ask you that you would in mercy intervene in powerful ways, that you will, would do your great work of cleansing from sin and transforming hearts, all for your glory and for our blessing. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.